together. Yeah, we're going to sing the Bible this morning. I'll be reading um, two passages, but um, they will be verse from the Old Testament, a few verses from Deuteronomy 6. And then I'll read the 1 Corinthians 8 passage as advertised. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 5. Now this is the commandment. The statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And hear what Moses says about who Israel's God is. Hear, O Lord, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And now... From 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 6. Watch how this rabbi who loved this one God passionately, because of what has been revealed to him when God knocked him off his horse through Jesus Christ, how he had to adjust his monotheism to fit Jesus Christ into it. Hear him adapt Israel's confession of the oneness of God to include Jesus alongside the Father. Now, concerning food I offered to idols, Paul writes to the Corinthians, we know that all of us possess knowledge. But, well, knowledge pops up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. What was Israel supposed to do? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, listen to this. But if one loves God, he is known by him. It's not so important what you know. It's that God knows you. And to have God know you, you simply have to love him the way the children of Israel were told to do. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and yet through whom and uh, for, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And there is one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. This would be the translation into the Greek of the personal name for God, Yahweh. Yahweh is Jesus Christ. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, 
and through whom we exist. Let us pray together. Our great God, we thank you for your word. We confess its truth. We confess its power. And we ask you to press its truth with your power upon our lives. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. And now you may be seated. Okay, I'm not so much interested in trying to explain how Paul could get from confessing there is one God to realizing that there is some complexity in that oneness, that that one God is two in person and really three in person. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to talk about the Holy Spirit today. I'm going to talk about the way the Son is God as well as the Father. And I'm not going to talk so much about how he gets there as much as what it means for us, because that's what was important to Paul. What does it mean that in Jesus Christ we have one who is God and man? This is the second in a three-part series that I'm doing since uh, Mike's taking a little time off this spring. I was with you a month ago, and I talked about why John would have us know that Jesus is the God-man. And I talked about the way I was really struck, by the way, in an episode of, of the TV show House, that this a wacko, crazy, sociopath doctor winds up being grabbed by a, a he's doing a, an in utero surgery. And this, the hand of this baby, and up to this point, House had just been saying, you know, you just need to have an abortion, get rid of this thing. And this little hand reaches out and grabs him, and he realizes, no, there's much more here. And his perspective changes because a hand from another world reaches out to him, and, well, he just becomes different. And a lot of what John is doing in his gospel is showing how from another world, a hand reaches out and just touches people, and, and they're different. And so John celebrates the one who was in the beginning with God and always was God. But when he strapped the sandals of our humanity to himself and came among us, he just made us different, made us more alive. Today I want to talk about Paul's voice and why why it's important to him that you and I understand that Jesus is God and man. And then I'll be back next weekend and I'll talk with us about the writer to the Hebrews and why he would have us celebrate Jesus as both God and man. But today, Paul. Paul is a very practical man. And he is all about the so what of why Jesus is God. And he's all about the so what of why Jesus is man. And I have two very simple points. He is the God-man to humble us. He is the God-man to raise us up from our bed of sloth. I 
I don't know about what your demons are, but here are mine. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I am not poor in spirit. I am a very proud person. I can be driving along and I can just remember some little thing that somebody said. Or the fact that I walked past somebody and they didn't even make eye contact. And I just, well, just, like, who are they to ignore me? Or who are they to slight me? And I'm just, they'll bother me for hours. And then the next morning, I will not be able to get out of bed. Because I'm just so overwhelmed with the tasks. And that it seems like like nobody cares. And I'll just... Just want to stay in this little ball of self-pity. And I just want to, it's just too hard. That is sloth. It's, you know, like the little animal that hangs upside down and moves like really slow. We often call it sloth, meaning laziness. But philosophers like philosophers talk about the deadly sin of sloth as being much more than physical laziness. It's just, I'm just over it. I'm just done. My my dad was forced into retirement in his uh, mid-70s, and like he had no backup plan. He had no plan for life after retirement, and you know what he did? He just plopped down in his recliner. He put on the television and spent his life going from one Atlanta Braves game to the next. That's that's my other demon. That's uh, so I I got this preening. I'm just so why doesn't everybody give me the attention I deserve? And then the next minute I'm just oh poor little me. I just quit. And it's so interesting, Jesus spoke to that too. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, to the other side of me, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for all things eventually to be made right, and for me to be made right. Because if you have that hunger, you will be satisfied. What excites Paul about Jesus is that he came to take us, he came as God to take us down and to make us humble rather than prideful. And he rose from the grave to promise us that all things will be made right one day. And even in the now, we can live in the reality of a newness of life that will get us out of bed in the morning and make us go live. Will make us alive. So... 
I want to go to Philippians 2 and read that passage with you. Philippians 2, 1 through 12. It's just so, Paul is so interesting. He does not spend a whole lot of time trying to explain the ontology or the metaphysic of how one God could also be three and how this one being could be this unique person who is both God and man in the same body. What he wants us to know is that it means something for us. In Philippians 2, this is one of Paul's most striking statements about the godness of Jesus. And I just want you to see what's on his heart when he talks to us about the fact that Jesus is God. Therefore, and I'm reading from the New American Standard. I apologize. You're probably reading the English Standard, but I'm Sometimes I'm reading from the RSV, sometimes I'm reading from the ESV, and sometimes I'm reading from the kid unauthorized. So (laughs) this is the New American Standard. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves." Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, and in the form of God for him is short for sharing the same nature as God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, by which he means something to hold on to or use for himself, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The robes of the glory of his deity He laid aside. He did not lay aside the deity, but he laid aside its glory. Strapped the sandals of our humanity to himself. Clothed himself forever with our humanity. And then, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. He hung out with fishermen and tax collectors. And he let sinful women wash his feet. And he went after a woman who was filled with seven demons and said, I want you to be my friend. And he went after a disreputable 
chief tax collector and said, I want to come to your house. He gained the reputation of being a wine-bibber and a glutton because he was more interested in hanging out with the disreputable party people than with the religious experts. He became a man of no reputation. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, death on a cross. The cross was the hangman's noose of its day. The cross was the electric chair of its day. It was not a symbol of piety. It was not a symbol of reverence. It was a symbol of shame. The Romans, the Romans would not crucify a fellow citizen. They would crucify, they would crucify the worst of criminals. They would crucify slaves. They would crucify revolutionaries. They would strip people naked, nail them or tie them to the cross and just let them hang there and suffocate in their shame and their nakedness as a sign to everybody else, don't you dare be like this because what happened to him will happen to you. It was the most shameful death that you could possibly imagine in the first century world. That's how much he humbled himself. And for this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That, by the way, is the phrase that God uses for himself in the book of Isaiah when he says, I will share my name with no one else. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am your Redeemer. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord, Yahweh, who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is none other. Is it not I, the Lord, who call you to repentance and who call you, who am, I call you, you know, come let us reason. I'm taking you to court because you're my people and you're supposed to be my people and you're not being my people. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and all and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back and to me. Every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance, and they will say of me, only in Yahweh, only in the Lord, are righteousness and strength. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. So here's one of Paul's most striking statements about Jesus as 
Yahweh himself who's come among us. And because he has come to, in humility, to humble us, God has raised him up so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are... Oh, and you know what Jesus means? It's Hebrew for Yahweh saves. So that the name of Jesus, Yahweh saves, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen. Okay, so what's the point? Well, there's only, there's, there's one application for this, and it's, I know it's different for each one of us. The Christian life is a no-pride zone. There's no task that is too low. There are no feet that are too ugly or too dirty for you and me to wash. There's no, there's no one who is so ugly or so unattractive that he doesn't love and that he can't use you to extend his kindness and his mercy. There is no there is no task that you are asked to do that cannot be a statement of the loveliness of who he is. Whether it's washing dishes, whether it's taking kids to soccer practice, whether it's getting up in the morning and just taking out your prayer sheet and covering and praying for persecuted Christians in Indonesia, uh, little boys pressed into military service against their will in tribal Africa, little girls forced into slavery and prostitution around the world that you will never see, but that with your humble little prayer, you may be the means of deliverance. And when people ignore you, when you feel like you have no voice, you can know that your voice counts to him. Because our God has humbled himself to come down to you and to wash your feet and to love you and to listen to and to listen to anything that's on your heart. Okay? So you go figure out what that means for you. I know some things that means for me, and there's kind of scary. But, you know, there's another kind of scary, too. And that's point two. He is the God-man to raise us up. You know, if you were, if you were here a month ago when I, when I um, spoke about John... I talked about this guy I talked about this guy in, in John 5 who for who was lame and for 38 years 
had been sitting, had been lying next to this pool right, you know, in Jerusalem, where, you know, the story was, the belief was that an angel would come down and, and, um, and um, make the water ripple and, thank you, stir the water. And, you know, the first person in would get their healing, would get their Joel Osteen or, or, or Benny Hinn touch and, you know, get healed. And for 38 years, this guy had not figured out a way to get to the water. And Jesus comes up and asks him, really, if you think about it, a very logical question. Like, do you want me to heal you? Because, like, you know, if you got legs, you're going to maybe have to actually go use them. And you may find that you're called upon to, you know, exercise some responsibility and go do some things that right now you don't have to do. This man's problem was, uh, was sloth as much as lameness. Well, you know, there's a lot of me in that too. So the other side of what Jesus comes to do is to raise us up. First Corinthians, or first of all, Romans 1, 1 through 4. It's interesting the different ways that Paul can talk about his gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, at the beginning of that chapter, uh, he's gonna, he will talk about the way that Jesus came according to the, that his gospel is the fact that Jesus came according to scriptures for our sins. In Romans 1, he talks about the gospel less in terms of what it does for us and talks about the gospel in terms of what it means for the Son himself. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his Son. And just watch what he has to say about the gospel here. It's not he died according to the scriptures for our sins and three days later rose. Here, what he wants us to know about the gospel is Jesus is Lord. The gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. That is, he came in the weakness of our humanity through the line of David, but was constituted son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus our Lord. There's a sense in which, though he was always son, he becomes son in a new way through his resurrection, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. He rises... He rises to a new kind of sonship. Paul ponders this more in 1 Corinthians 15. A little down into the chapter, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, 
By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ rises from the dead and is named Son of God with power. And then we are told that his resurrection is not just a freak of nature. It's the first fruit of a great harvest. Because those who are in him are going to experience the same thing that happened to him, to be raised in power. And 1 Corinthians 15 is, is kind of one of those chapters that kind of goes here and there and yon. But I want you to notice where it lands. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Here's Paul's big therefore from this 58-verse-long chapter. It's one of his most complicated and it's a back and forth. But he wants to make one point. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's a call to get off your bottom, get out of bed, stop feeling sorry for yourself because life is beating you up, and look at what has happened to Jesus and know that it's going to happen to you. He rises as the second man, the last Adam, in anticipation of the fact that that's going to happen for you. And if you're in Christ, in the inner being, it has already happened. He calls them the first fruits. I don't... Anybody from an agricultural background grow up on a farm? Hmm? First fruits? That's just a familiar concept to people in agriculture. When, you know, you work and you work and you work, you plant, you, pl- you plow, you plant, you water, and you do everything you may- can to encourage growth, and then you have to kind of just sit there and wait, pull the weeds, and then you start getting a little, you know, fruit, and it's green or whatever, and then it starts to ripen. And when the first, when the first fruit starts to ripen, that's you'd go out and you'd, You'd pull it and you'd have a big feast because you know, the work's starting to pay off. And you pull in the first fruit, but then you better get ready to go do some more work because once the first fruit comes in, first fruits come in, what is going to happen? The rest is going to come in and you're going to get really busy. What he's saying about the resurrection, what, uh, what he's saying about what happened to Jesus Christ is that his resurrection is the beginning of Everybody's resurrection. He didn't die just as an exception to the rule. He died as the beginning of what's going to happen to us. There's a great illustration of this in Yellowstone National Park. And if you've never been to Yellowstone, this is a reason to go. 
Beehive Geyser. And it's just a few hundred yards away from Old Faithful, which is why everybody goes. And everybody goes to see Old Faithful because you can always count on Old Faithful going off every, I don't know, hour, 47 minutes or something like that, plus or minus. And, I mean, you can almost set your watch by when Old Faithful's going off. But, you know, it's just a little bit of a spitter, okay? It's really kind of cool, but it's not, it's not like magnificent. It's just reliable. Well, a few hundred yards from Old Faithful is a spectacular geyser called Beehive. And it's called Beehive because it's, well, it's really about twice as big as this uh, pile of rocks up here. And, um, and it's got a hole about this big at the top of it. And it looks like a big old beehive. And the, when beehive goes, it goes up whoo, about a couple hundred feet. And it goes for about five minutes. And it's like, whoa. And people just stand there and just go, oh, my goodness. <laughs> the only problem is you never know when beehive is going to Go. It might go, you know, every couple of days or every three days. It might go in the middle of the night. It might go in the middle of the day. You just don't know. And so a lot of people miss it. And you can't, like, you can't, you know, plan your vacation around it unless you're going to spend a bunch of days and, like, sit there and wait. Oh, except for this. At the base of Beehive... There's a little geyserette. They call it the indicator because there's a little tributary off to the side. And about 10, 15, 20 minutes before Beehive is going to go, the little indicator goes. And it just goes up about 20 feet. And what they do is they, they post, they post uh, guides out there with walkie-talkies. And they just sit there. And they're, you know, they're just watching for the indicator. And when the little geyserette goes off, they get on the intercom and they call the ranger station. And the ranger station puts out an announcement. Everybody, the indicator at Beehive has just gone off. And if you're within the sound of the, of my voice, you have time to go to Beehive because in 10, 15, or 20 minutes, the big geyser is going to go. It's spectacular. You don't want to miss it. Drop whatever you're doing because the big one is going to go. When Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits, he's saying the indicator has gone off. It's only a matter of time. It may be a thousand years, it may be two thousand years, it may be ten thousand years. It doesn't really matter. It hasn't happened on its own. Jesus has risen because the geyser is going to blow. And our job as ambassadors is to go tell everybody. The indicator has gone. And now's your chance to go be a part of the greatest show this planet has ever seen. Come and be a part of the party. And in the meantime, it means that our lives are given worth and value and dignity because we know, we know where it's going and we know that that power has already 
gone to work in our lives. And so Jesus' resurrection is a call to, like, get over your bad self and live. Rise and walk. Um, One of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, Karl Barth, wrote an extensive church dogmatics. The fourth volume has two volumes. And in these two volumes, he talks about the work of Christ. And if I may sum it up, in this volume, he says, essentially, Jesus was God who came down to destroy our pride. He rose as the God-man to get us out of the bed of sloth and to let us know that we have been united with him. And as he is now, so we will one day be and live in light of that hope. How does that apply to you? I don't know. A lot of us, when we're young, we're very busy, but we're busy with just with busyness. And we haven't really gotten a, a real strong grip on God's having a purpose for our lives that gives us a reason for being in school. It gives us a focus on whether he might call us to serve him in medicine or in law or in the ministry to be a hand for him to bring his justice and his mercy and truth to our society, our world, our nation. Others of us who are on the older side of things, um, sloth can make you really busy with the wrong things, but sloth can also just make you give up. And many of us, as we approach our last days, we live lives of regret. We look back and say, I woulda, I coulda, I shoulda, and it's too late for me. Thomas Aquinas had some very good words for those of us who are like who are at that stage in our lives. He said You know, people who age well in Jesus, they gain a certain youthfulness as they approach their last days. When you don't know Christ and you look back on your life, the past looks long and the future looks short. And you regret But if you're in Jesus, the closer you get to that threshold, the more you realize that your death will be a passing on into eternity. And it will just open out onto this vast, wonderful vista of fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with his saints. And when you realize that, 
You look back and the past looks short and the future looks long and you find the energy to live well, to live in love, to live with power and to find how much you still have to offer. And whether we're young and unfocused or whether we're older and battling the demons of a woulda, coulda, a shoulda. Jesus' resurrection means I can get off, I can, I, can, I can rise, and I can walk. I can walk in a focused way, an intentional way, and I can know his love and his power. And I can know that my labor will never be in vain. Can we pray? Lord Jesus Christ, we honor you. We give you thanks for coming among us to call us to your own humility and to call us to live to live well, to live large, and to live in you. Pray that you would apply your word as only you can to each heart in this room. Where there is pride and arrogance in our hearts, would you gentle us? Where we're just about to give up, would you strengthen us and encourage us? In Jesus' name, our Father, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing number 164, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing.